You're listening to the Girls on the Grid podcast with Tamara and Priya. Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of Girls on the Grid. I'm Priya and I'm your host for today's episode. I promise you very soon Tanea and I will be on a podcast together. It's just a bit of a crazy time and yeah, I can't remember the last time we kind of interacted on a podcast together, but it will be very soon, I promise. Um, But let's get straight into today's pod. A couple weeks ago, I sat down with the lovely Maddie Scordia. She is a MotoGP journalist living in Ireland and we had a great chat about all things motorsport and some of her own journeys getting to where she is today. She's all around just a really nice girl and really good at what she does. She's also had to overcome some very big challenges and has quite an inspiring story. But yeah, um, without further ado, I reckon let's get straight into that chat. Now introducing MotoGP journalist Maddie Scordia. Maddie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. <laughs> so Maddie, tell us about how you got into motorsport and how you got into your role now as a motorsport journalist. I think it's a, a bit of a whirlwind of an experience, actually. I, um, I started my career in motorsport as an umbrella girl, of all things, Um and I think I really made the most of that platform in terms of meeting the people I knew I needed to meet in order to become who I am today. Um, and that was five years of work. It wasn't just, you know, turn up, look pretty, hold an umbrella and go home. It was very much like, who are the people in this room that you need to connect with in order to get to the next step in your career? Um, and over the course of a couple of years, I did that not only through MotoGP, but um, Australian Superbikes as well, World Superbikes very much took the opportunities when I was invited uh, to different races to go and be a part of it um, and definitely definitely leverage the relationships I built in those years to end up here where I am now. And growing up, was motorsport something you were always interested in? Was there something or someone that inspired you to be involved in motorsport? Not at it just all. Developed? Not at all. I think... I would, like, my dad would definitely watch it on the weekends, but it wasn't my cup of tea. I was very much like a horse girl, you know, just, I grew up with horses. I grew up in farmland, like, Me too. <laughs> but I think what stuck was like the competitiveness. I've always been very competitive, have a desperate need to win all the time. I hate losing, um, you know, these are tell, telltale signs of a salesperson through and through really. Um, so for me, when I did get involved in motorsport and it was because of an ex-boyfriend of all things he was really into it um I just it just clicked it met all of my requirements for sport it was fast it was competitive it was interesting on and off track um there was a high level of development and engineering and I just it it just worked for me and I loved being able to like get involved in that competition so that's kind of where it sprouted from um, so thanks to my ex-boyfriend for that. He did one good thing. It's great. You get a positive <laughs> out of a negative. That's good. Exactly. <laughs> and you've come so far this year. You're, you've taken a huge step and you're, uh, you've moved to Europe and you're working full-time in MotoGP. How has this been for you, not only career-wise, but personally getting to travel as well? Um, I think career-wise, everything is more confronting than you imagine it to be sometimes and I don't know if I phrased that correctly but I think definitely coming into this role full-time 
um, being responsible for my own content and also being responsible for my own criticism can be a lot. Um, if you don't like criticism, journalism is probably not a great place to be. Uh, you're highly criticised all the time. And I think this, not to sound stereotypical, but I get it twice fold. I get called, you know, every nasty word under the sun because five years ago I used to hold umbrellas and that particular profession has a connotation with being dirty or being naughty, I suppose you could say. So yeah. I, I think that's been quite confronting and it's also been really difficult to sort of get over that hill. Um, but in the same token, I love hanging out a line and seeing what I'll catch. I really am known for being quite a sarcastic little bitch at the best of times and I'm not bothered by it <laughs> because why should I be concerned about what a 45-year-old man sitting on his lounge who wants to be me thinks of me? Exactly. It's not my business. Um, and as for moving to Europe, well, I think that was always going to happen. And I think it's really funny because when I was a teenager, I always imagined living in a van and traveling across Europe. And, you know, lo and behold, now I'm 26, I live in a van and I go racing every weekend. And in between races, I see wonderful places in the world that I don't think I'd have the opportunity to do without motorsport. Yeah. And you get to feel it as a job, which is just the best thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's tiring, but it's great. And so did you do any study to get into your role? Weirdly, no, but I do have, uh, I have a law degree. So like I, I studied, um, hated it, hated law, hated the concept of paying high attention to detail for long periods of time. It is not for me. Um, but what I did to get into my role um, was I was a salesperson at a media and events company for about three or four years, Comexposium. Um, and it was great. I loved it. The, the whole concept of building relationships and having a common interest where people are willing to invest their time and money is so, tra it's a, such a transferable skill that it doesn't matter if you become a journalist, when you have something that you can talk about with such love and depth and critique, um, people want to engage with that. So that's definitely been incredibly useful and it's been incredibly useful for me in terms of meeting more people. And I'm not, I'm not shy. I never have been. Um, some people love it, some people hate it, but that just works for me. And so now you've come into motorsport as a journalist. Since then, has there been any other kind of areas of motorsport that you might like to work in? I mean, you've got all these skills. There's so much you could do with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, I think for me, I'm having pretty frequent conversations um, for next year. And uh, at the moment, I'm also managing kind of a side hustle um, which is kind of a talent management agency. And I work predominantly with one person at the moment, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, what we've done is geared them up for sponsorship next year, geared up all of their endorsements. They're not going to have to worry about how they can afford to race, um, you know, in an international competition next year because of the conversations that I have gone out and had and closed deals for them. So... I think for me, long term, the goal is definitely talent management um, and sponsorship relationships. That's that's really where I feel most at home. That's my cup of tea. But that will come in good time. And at the moment, I'm I'm happy to stir the pot in journalism. It's always a good day. Yeah, that's really cool. So, is this talent talent um, management thing? Is that something that you're doing as your own business type thing? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, I think um, if anybody knows who Jacob Hatch is he is um, ex-ASBK writer he has just 
almost, when is he? No, he turns 18 next fortnight. Um, so he's a baby and he and his mum moved to the UK this year to compete in BSB and like the work that the Hatches put into getting Jacob over here was insane. Um, and I think for me, the goal along with his mum and his dad and his entire family is just to be able to give him a platform to keep racing. He is a really talented kid. I think for someone to move continents and jump on a bike they've never ridden before and jump on tracks they've never ridden before and have top 10 finishes is pretty fantastic. Um, so us being able to support him and keeping up the momentum is really important. And for me, he's kind of like my my prototype for my business because if I execute that successfully and I show sponsors that he's valuable to them and their businesses, then there's no reason why I can't do that for other Australian talented kids as well. With everything you do, what does kind of just an average day look like for you, not only just at home, but at the racetrack as well? I think um, at home is quite a a humble life usually. Um, As you can imagine, a a racetrack is a four-day long weekend, so it's a very start at 7.30, 8 a.m., finish at 8 p.m. Do you have time to eat or not? I don't know. Uh, so when, when we're at home, we have a pretty humble life. We go for a walk with the dog and we cook and we clean and that's it. But at the racetrack, um, uh, I would say I'm a little bit more eccentric than other journalists and photographers. Um, I tend to walk in to the media center at about 10 a.m. after I've had two coffees and still in desperate need of sleep because I don't go to sleep until about midnight. Um, and then I question why I'm tired. So I'm a bit... A bit more like that. (laughs) But my day definitely revolves around talking to people in the paddock. I really am not one of those people that can sit still or stand still. I need to go and have a chat. And um, I think that's definitely what helps me in my role is, like I said, just having great relationships with people where I don't have to worry if I ask a question because I always know I'll get a decent answer. Um, And it's you know, pivotal to this particular role. If you don't know people in the paddock and you're not willing to meet and talk to them, then you're not going to get the information you need and that your editor needs more than anything um, and to be a competitive news outlet. So that's kind of how my day works. Also, I think by about six o'clock, you'll find me in Aprilia Hospitality. Um, I wish that was a joke, but uh, Aprilia Hospitality feed me and keep me watered on a regular basis. <laughs> so I don't know what I'd do without them, to be honest. I love that. So... You've also, this year, you've moved to Ireland. How's that going for you? Do you miss home at all or? No, weirdly, not at all. Um, I live in Derry in Northern Ireland with my partner. Um, Is and there it's... a TV show about that? Derry Girls? Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's the best TV show. You have to watch it. It's so good. It's uh, It gives you a lot of great historical context for what happened, particularly in Derry during the 90s before the Good Friday um, Agreement. So it's it's worth watching. Okay. Um but yeah, I mean, Northern Ireland is a very interesting place to live as a whole. I think if anybody knows anything about Northern Ireland, it's it's been a very tumultuous place with a very tumultuous history, um, you know, between two particular ethnic groups, those being Irish Catholics and those being Irish Protestants. Um, and it's, it's still kind of felt today in a lot of ways. You know, we have the 12th of July coming up this month, which is um, an, an interesting day if you are catholic you probably won't be here is the best way to put it um but it's very much a day that 
one side of the the group likes to represent themselves and everybody's entitled to do that it's a democracy here but it is a very interesting place to live with a lot of political large political landscape and history and it, it can be quite difficult to navigate um but that aside i love living here i love the culture i love my my partner's family i've never felt more at home and i think because we're at racetrack so often i don't have time to miss home i'm not thinking about anyone else i'm thinking about you know okay i've got to get this story out and i've got to talk to that person i've got to close this deal and i'm really not concerned with whatever's going on in sydney and whenever I do yep. speak to my dad, he says it's like raining cats and dogs. It's like, not that mm. interesting down here at the moment. <laughs> I just see every time I turn on the news in Australia, I'm like, oh, there's a car washing down the street. It's ridiculous, yeah. But with all the travel, is it good kind of having that base in like over it in Europe? Do you find it nice having that home to go to when you're away so much? I definitely enjoy coming home, but between races we live in a van, so... And for most of the season, like we're very much, you know, living our van life and we drive to wherever we want to and we see the cities we want to see. But now that we've got a five week break, like I'm absolutely so glad to be home because it is exhausting to see the same people week in, week out and travel so far. And, you know, before we left for the summer break, I told everyone in the media centre, I am so happy not to see your face for five weeks. <laughs> I'm really looking it's forward to that. It's kind of what it's like, it. isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, you travel together, you travel internationally, and you, you do kind of live out of each other's pockets, and you absolutely get on each other's nerves constantly. Um, you know, I'm not going to pretend that we don't because they're a journalist that I absolutely adore that I would really just love to shake sometimes, and I'm sure people feel the exact same about me, which I can completely appreciate. But... Um, so it's nice to have a bit of a five-week break from people. And we love them. Well, I love everyone I work with, but I love not having to see them for a little while too. It's like a big family, isn't it, where you enjoy your time together, but you really do need that time apart as well. That's how I found it. It, it definitely is. I think at this level, it's definitely a family that has fractures. Um, you know, we, we, let's, we shouldn't pretend that everybody likes each other all the time because they don't. They simply don't. Everybody's in competition. Photographers are in competition with each other. Journalists are in competition with each other. Um, it can be a bit difficult to, you know, make trust people even. with information yeah. and make friends. Exactly, you know. And, yeah. and for me, I'm, I'm not too bothered. I'll make friends with a tree if I have to. But um, mm-hmm. it, it can feel that way sometimes and it can feel a bit overwhelming. But once you get over that, period of like oh I need to be liked when you realize you don't actually have to be liked your work day is so much better everybody gets along so much better because they're not there to impress each other I just wanted to go back so you said you were an umbrella girl or a grid girl do we call it are they they the same grid girl they're the same they're the exact same we talked a bit about this with Tahan on our last pod what are your thoughts on categories such as I think it's I know F1 did and supercars getting rid of the grid girls what are your thoughts on that I think for me, the the problem with grid girls, and I think a really great example of this is actually what happened at Le Mans MotoGP this year, uh, where we had Can Can girls and burlesque girls on on the uh, grid, and it did cause quite a stir. And people will be critical of what I'll say because I was an umbrella girl, but I think that the whole concept is slightly outdated. Now, I have no problem with promotional models 
None whatsoever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Outside of being a grid girl, I was also a promotional model. I used to go to football games like the NRL and help hand out free footballs to kids. So it's really not any different to being an umbrella girl. However, fundamentally, particularly in this sport, women are hypersexualized, and you are expected to wear a very short dress and a very low cut top. And you know what? If you're comfortable doing that, I'm not saying you shouldn't be. I definitely was. I, I mean, I look at myself five years ago. If I could have that body back, I would. But it, there comes a point where it's just accepted. And I can tell you from experience, I used to have my ass hit all the time. And I used to have people say really dirty things about me in Italian without knowing I spoke Italian. And I would call them out on their bullshit. And this was a really rather regular thing. It's um, quite objectifying, isn't it? It, it is, and I think there is a certain type of people that don't mind being objectified. I know I certainly did it when I was 18 and 19 because I was 18, 19 years old. Um, definitely loved the attention. I won't pretend that I didn't. I, was a, I knew I was a, a, not a bad-looking young woman, and I loved the attention. But as I've gotten older and I've learned to see things through adult eyes, what I've learned is I was really – exploited i was underpaid most of the time if i was paid at all uh murder team murder two teams are famous for it um and as i've gotten older and i look back yeah i have some great memories but also i shouldn't have had to go through to extreme lengths and i shouldn't have had to allow people to hit my backside or pinch my bum and call it oh it's just the way it is it's not just the way it is that's that's bullcrap that's not how it has to be um, and I think my my partner shared something in the Le Monde MotoGP this year. He shared a photo of the CanCan girls on the grid, and he said, this is wildly inappropriate because it continues to perpetuate the idea that, firstly, the only culture that France has to offer is, you know, courtesans in short skirts, and secondly, that the only role for women in motorsport is hypersexualized. Now he got his ass kicked for that. People were like, there's no problem, this, that, and the other. You can take your six-year-old to the Moulin Rouge. Yeah, you can take your six-year-old to the Moulin Rouge. How about MotoGP? It's not, it's, it's about the fact that, and something that seems to go over the head of a lot of people is that these CanCan girls have a connotation as a Parisian brothel because they were so poor in the 19th and 20th century that they had no choice but to prostitute themselves. So continuing to perpetuate these stereotypes as part of culturally significant um, or just that the, the placement of it continues to perpetuate the stereotype that women are only significant to motorsport if they're hypersexualized. And that was yeah. the argument that we made. And look, nobody, not a lot of people agreed with us, but I, I do feel that way. I think it's, it takes away from the women that are in marketing, the women that are in comms, the women that are I in totally engineering. Agree. Yeah. Um, it, it shifts focus. And there's no reason why you can't have promotional models who are in a nice pair of jeans, wedges, mm -hmm. and a collar shirt. I just think it looks nicer anyway. It just looks smarter. Personally, so do I. that's what I think. I agree. And I think the good girls look great. They look amazing. But, yeah, it's what's attached to it. Exactly. And for me, it's not about looking like... Be as hot as you want. I'm not intimidated by hot women. Like it, I'm, I'm 
so overtly body confident yeah. because I appreciate how strong and everything that my body's been through. I don't need to be insecure. So it has nothing to do with feeling like a fish out of water or intimidated. It's just, I know when I look at those girls that especially if they're really young, they're definitely getting objectified in a lot of ways and probably appreciating it. And as they get older, they'll look back and go, actually, I didn't really appreciate that at all. Yeah. And it's, it's changing it at the source. That's key. And I think, representation is really important and one thing for me was when I was young I grew up amongst it my dad he raced I it was never it was I was never told oh you can't race because you're a a girl I just didn't see it but what I did see I saw grid girls so when I was younger I thought oh yeah I'll just be a grid girl be a grid girl I think actually honestly I think me coming into motorsport was very much the same way believe it or not I think it was there's a sport that I love. It's competitive and I get to, you know, look pretty on the weekend. And when you're... I mean, who doesn't want to do it's that? It's true. <laughs> but when you're 18 and 19, what's what's your top concern? You know, it's all about how you look and how people perceive you and how you want to be perceived. And you're not old enough to be completely individual and completely sure in your decisions because you've not made enough mistakes. No, sorry. I was like, it's just fundamental to growth. It's fundamental to human growth. But if you continue to allow these things to happen, the fact that I have to keep saying change it at the source and change it at the source means the people that work in the paddock. Um, and that's actually what I find most concerning about the complaints I hear week in, week out. It's funny. When I was younger, I was like 14 and I worked, I was working in my family's race team. And like I was 14, I was very clearly like a teenager and I had my team uniform on I had shorts on and they weren't like short shorts and I had my hair down I had really like long blonde hair I had a bit of makeup on like cute like 14 year old yeah just running, running around the track exactly and I had the most disgusting things said to me by grown men and it wasn't an in person but like online as well and it was it's like this um, view of, I felt it was, maybe it was because it was how I was dressing and I was in the team uniform and I had the makeup and the shorts on. And it's just, it's so weird because as soon as I hit 18 and I was working for different companies, wearing different uniforms, that just stopped. Yeah. And I'm just like, mm. I think it's um, interesting. It's interesting. And I think also there is a real level of, weirdness to it all I'm not going to pretend there isn't there are some really weird people um in in every aspect of life in every career path you choose you will come across weird people and you're right like I remember being in a school uniform and getting catcalled by tradies you know it's it's things like that it's very much sickly in a lot of ways and what I was actually thinking about this last night I was talking to Simon about it what I find most fascinating is that People call me things like a, a whore and a slut now. But when I was a grid girl in a role where that would be accepted, no one would call me that. I had I geared more respect as a grid girl from commonplace than I do now um, yeah. and from, wow. from people on the internet than I do now. And it's not respect. It's just where a particular group of people, usually the opposite sex, expect you to stay. And that's in their lane, in a place where they can see you and you look great to them, but you're not 
doing advertly better than them or you're not doing the job that they want. That's And when it what doesn't it suit them, it's, yeah. You're, you're a whore, you're an SLUT, like, who, do, who are you? You slept your way to get to where you did, which is just not the case. There's still a long way to go, isn't there? A hundred percent. We will. And it's, it's getting better. And if you, don't, if you don't call out the bullshit, you just allow it to continue. And not everyone's going to agree with you all the time, and that's fine. Let them disagree with you. You know, I get it on Twitter all the time. But I'd rather have people make a fool of themselves for me then me have to overtly call them out because they do it themselves. Nah, it'll be interesting to see kind of the direction all that goes in the next few years. But I honestly think, I think getting rid of the good girls has helped. It's drawing attention to the girls that are actually, you know, journalists, journalists, drivers, mechanics, engineers, all, all other women yeah. involved. Heaps better. I, I, I agree with you. And I think it's, it's about changing that ideology from grid girl to promotional models and promotional staff because it shouldn't just be women there's it should be blokes handing out like why can't men hand out stickers and wear team uniforms and hat like what there's no problem with that you know it's not about being pretty I'm starting to see that a bit more now um in the supercars even up on the podiums and everything so yeah getting in the right in a MotoGP as well it will it will it's just changing that perception Mm -hmm. awesome I love that so are there any other categories that you kind of are interested in working in, whether that's maybe coming back and doing supercars or F1 or IndyCar, anything like that? I think I think for me, I'll, I'll definitely stay in my lane. Like I, I know more about two wheels than I do four. And I, as much as I enjoy Formula One, I think yesterday was a really great example of why safety measures are important in Unreal, sport. Hey. Um well, you know, two or three years ago, a lot of people would have protested the halo and said that it changes the aerodynamics of the car. And yesterday just proves how necessary it is. Um, and I think MotoG, MotoGP in particular can learn a lot from Formula One uh, safety rules and safety regulations. Um, but that aside, I think I'll stay in my lane. Um, I enjoy Formula One. I enjoy supercars, but I'm definitely a two-wheel kind of girl. Um, so if I... if if for whatever reason I do end up back in Australia, I think for me it's definitely going to be about talent um, development and management, moving kids out of AFBK into things like BSB and Moto America, um, CEV and CIV. And that's all in good time. I don't see that not happening. I just see that being a very long-term yeah, plan. Yeah, just go with the flow, see what happens and do what you love. Yeah. Back in November 2020, you had quite a terrible accident uh, where you got burnt. And since recovering, yep. you've gone on to work with organisations such as Burn Support Foundation and the Sydney yep. Royal North Shore Hospital. Now, how has this whole thing been for you personally, not only in the recovery, but also going on to work closely with these types of organisations? Uh, I think <clears throat> in the beginning, let's not say the beginning, I think, Hospital was probably the easiest part of my recovery, believe it or not. I had 60% burns to my body, uh, which meant I had 60% skin grafts on my body. So my my skin came from my back um, and my legs. So that was all very traumatic and whatever else. But when you're in hospital, you tend to think more about other people than you do yourself. And I still remember the first two weeks out of hospital, we were staying in Adelaide, I was away from home when all of this happened. So I was in South Australia, we'd rented an apartment. It was all very, there's a lot 
that happened. Anyway, I was staying close to the hospital. I remember laying in bed thinking like, what will my life be? And I felt very lost. And like I said, I, I do not forget the fact that I really relied on my body. I thought I was a hot piece. I knew I was a pretty woman. I really did. And to have all of that taken away in what was a really traumatic way, like I, I pray that no one else ever, ever has to experience being on fire. It was horrendous. Um, and then seeing your body with no skin and it, it was really horrendous. It was a really hard time. And then I moved back to Sydney and I went back to work a month after I got out of hospital because I was determined to believe that nothing was wrong. Nothing had happened. There's nothing I couldn't handle. I was not prepared for my life to be a patient. Um, and then by December, it all came crashing down. You know, my, my drugs had to change that I was taking that were prescribed. So it was like coming off of, you know, 600 milligrams of pregabalin a day, which is a really high intensity drug um, for neurological and neurological pain. And it was a lot to go through mentally. Physically, I'd recovered so well, but I was feeling pain. And mentally, I thought I'd never look the same and I'd never love myself and blah, blah, blah. Like all of that crap just going on in your head 24-7. And outside of that, you're trying to run a business and you're trying to you know, sell and, and be a reliable employee. There was just a lot in 2020 and 2021. And the, the work I started doing with the Royal North Shore Hospital and the Burn Support Foundation um, not only allowed me to help others, but also allowed me to help myself. And I remember my my nurse at the Royal North Shore Hospital saying to me, his name is Pete, he's like, Maddie, it's gonna you're gonna crash. You're pretending you're fine. You're not fine. You're gonna crash. And I'm like, I'm fine, I'm going out, I'm drinking with my friends, I'm dancing, like I'm happy, I'm fine. He's like, You're not fine. I know you're not fine. You can't be fine. But nobody would be fine after this experience. And then in December I had to call the hospital and said, I think I'm having a breakdown, like, what do I do? And um yeah. It all came good. By the time January rolled around and you kind of got off of those really hard drugs that you had to take and um, it it just it came good suddenly. It just all yeah. clicked and I was like, it's okay to not be okay. And I think the, the help that I've been doing with the Burn Support Foundation has put me in touch with other women, particularly my own age um, and men, children. Um, and we talk about things like how our life changed and why it changed. And, you know, I think the question anybody asks themselves when they go through something really traumatic is why me? And the fact of the matter is it's just the luck of the draw. You don't get the choice. It's life. And accepting that fact is the hardest thing to get through. But once you do accept it, you can start to move on. And like I said, you know, I, I wasn't always this body confident or happy with the way I look now. But then one day it just clicked that it's not going to change. <laughs> like I'm always going to be this person that I am. And whether I'm pleased that I that that happened to me or not, of course I'm not pleased, but I also appreciate the fact I have so much more in my life now because of my accident than I did before. And this career I have, um, you know, the lifestyle I live that I always wanted to live, taking chances because I could would never have happened without my accident. 
and even you know the relationship with my partner would never have happened without my accident so it's hard and I think what's really great about working with those foundations is I can bring these stories to other people who are still at the start of their journey and see no hope and it all seems very bleak and it, it is really reminding people that time moves slowly sometimes is really hard but you'll you'll look back eventually and go I've come a long way in a very short time and and you don't know it at the time until you stop and look and appreciate and that's the the kind of lessons I get to sort of engage with with those foundations and um I just know it's incredibly hard and nothing I can say or do will make it easier but it it is an incredibly hard cross to bear and if you are given it I have complete and total sympathy for you and it's not just burns you know any kind of massive accident that changes your body and with irreparable damage is really confronting it's really really confronting and for me I think I was really fortunate that I was in the motorsport community and had a lot of athletes and people that I know who have been through similar accidents, well, not, you know, not exactly a fire, but have been through life-changing accidents, um, support me when I needed it. So that was my inspiration to support others, I think, because I don't know what I would have done without them. Mm-hmm. And how did you go kind of easing back into your career and, and doing what you do now after? Because it wasn't long oh, ago. It was a massive, massive, no, yeah. it was a massive failure. It was the biggest failure of my life and I'm so proud of it um so I went back to work at Comexposium a month after I got out of hospital and mind you 2021 we were still all in and out of lockdown it was not it it it, why did I not take the year off I don't know looking back I'm like why did you feel the need to do this to yourself but um I went back to work I went back to work eight hours a day like everyone else and three days a week I was still going to the hospital for four hours a day and yeah and I like I said I was like convinced that nothing had to change nothing had to change it's fine you have to wear a compression suit for a year you will be fine you'll dress around it you'll get over it just go back to work and move on um and I let so many things slip at work that even like I said, I'm not big on attention to detail. I'm really not. It's what makes me a good salesperson, not really a marketing person. They're okay. very different mm-hmm. strategies. Um, but the role that I kind of had to move back into when I went back to work was a more marketing focused role because of the way that the world had become with COVID and whatever else. I wasn't needed as much in the sales team. Um, and although I know lots about marketing, it's just not my forte. And I did, I dropped the ball on so many things that were not hard. They weren't difficult, but because I was just in a different state of mind, I gave everything away. And I remember my colleague from New Zealand calling me and she's like, what's wrong with you? And I remember saying like, I just don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. I just, I would rather be dead. And it was a real... Going back, it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And going back to work put so much pressure on myself that I probably didn't need, but I wanted to prove to myself, and I think more than myself, I wanted to prove to everyone around me that I am so strong and, you know, I think I had a, well, exactly. And I think I had a real lack of support from home as well, which made it even more prevalent to prove, like, I don't need you. I am successful 
without you. You know, I look at how well I, and how far I've come. Um, and looking back, I think that's the other reason why I really like being involved in the foundations is because nobody knew how to talk to me. Everybody wanted to tiptoe around what had happened. And it's one of those things where you just have to be bold and upfront about it. You can't just say, I remember someone said to me, like, I can't look at you. It hurts me too much. And in my head, I'm like, it, it hurts yeah. you. Right. Okay. Let me throw this yeah. brick at you and see if it hurts. Like that was the, yeah. it was stupid crap like that. And that was why going back to work was so important to me. And, and looking back, I'm like, if you're not ready for something, if you, if you honestly feel like you need to constantly prove yourself to other people, they're probably not the people you need in your life. Yeah. <laughs> like exactly. in hindsight. Yeah. But like I said, my career has just come because I was a failure in such spectacular, like it was spectacular. It was, it really, really was because I failed so spectacularly when I took December off and allowed myself to completely crash and just have this emotional breakdown, which obviously I'd built up for so long and needed. By the time January rolled around, I went back to work. I gave my notice, my three months notice, and I performed the best I had in a year. You just needed that. Like my work was impeccable. Mm. And I was selling right up until the last day. And it was really just, it was about alleviating pressure. And also, I think I knew I was getting on a plane. So I was quite happy to, you know, <laughs> have this bay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you've definitely overcome some challenges for sure. And how, what's well, been 18 months, would you say, since it happened? Yeah, thereabouts, yeah. So how's the recovery going now? I mean, for me, like, uh, my skin's still changing color. Like, so it has completely grown back. It's completely healed. It's, um, it's malleable. So like you can pick it up and move it. Um, but it will take time for that color to completely settle in. My legs were the worst. They were sort of burnt from just above my knee, right to my ankles on both sides. Um, I'm really fortunate that I didn't lose any muscle in, in that whole period. It's very much just skin burns, but you know, it was still a lot of skin grafting and whatever else. So, um, the blood vessels are still growing back. I get in pain occasionally. Um, if I stand for too long, my legs will start hurting. You'll see me like fidget around, try and keep the blood moving. Um, but for the most part, aside from not having sweat glands because they were burnt off. So I sweat profusely now in heat. Um, oh, it's horrendous. Like hot weather is not made for me. I do not leave the media center if it's hot. (laughs) Um, well, it changes so much of your body and, you know, you have sweat glands in all parts of your body. So your chest, um, your stomach, your legs, your breasts. So, you know, if it is, if you remove those and you have less sweat glands, so obviously I still have them, but not to the extent I did before. I mean, I don't even have them on my wrists now. So I can overheat really quickly. So that's something I need to pay a lot of attention to. Um, Exercising became a lot harder because obviously overheating was really difficult. So I had to find new ways to exercise. So swimming kind of became my um, version of cardio. I very much swapped out one for the other. And in Northern Ireland, it's not so bad because it's always cold here. So I haven't overheated here yet. (laughs) But um, they're just a few ways in which my life changed, but they're not, they're not, difficult to work around once you accept that you can't you know change everything and you do need to change parts of your lifestyle um 
and I eat a lot more vegetables than I used to because I need to support skin growth and you know skin health so which is a good thing really so no of course no well you've shown some real strength so yeah that's really good to see and and to see how far you've come you know even just in your career as well after going through something like that that's that's really good thank you yeah I think these are some of the these are the more important things that I've learned as I've like come to terms with how my body is and how it's changed whatever else um I I can't like I I never really enjoyed running before anyway but I really enjoyed netball and I enjoyed sport and suddenly I was like why is this so difficult because it's not just about the the pain in my legs or the um you know how how delicate my skin is because it can crack open if you fall over pretty easily now and it was very much accepting the fact that I had to find new ways to make my body feel comfortable and work. And um, you do you do adjust. You do adjust and you, you do figure out what's right for you. And, you know, I think the hardest, the actual hardest thing for me truly has been trying to grow my hair back because it is so slow with the growth because all the nutrients my body takes goes to places where it's more important than hair growth. So it's got it's getting there. It's getting longer yeah, now. I'm quite good. happy. But looks that's really been good. thank you. But that's been the hard thing for me, like because that's such a important part of how I look and how I present myself. And you know, when I had my accident, it was like all burnt off, and I had like an undercut. It was not attractive at all. Um, and those were kind of scary. So, and it, even me, like I, I had sixty percent burns to my body, but I know it could have been worse. And I never take that back for granted either. So. You know, at the end of the day, I'm still here. I'm still kicking, mm-hmm. and I'm still doing things that other people wish they had. So I'm not exactly. too. Yep. Doesn't faze me anymore. Let's get into some fun questions. What would you say has been your favorite country to travel to? That's really hard. It's <laughs> <laughs> so many. Probably Italy. I would say Italy. There's well, it's not that there's so many. It's just that I love, like, I find enjoyment in everywhere I go. Uh, I don't know. Do I do I mean Germany or Italy? I really want to go to Italy. That's like my number one. I don't. I think I will. I think Germany, but that's because Berlin is such a cool city. Like Berlin is just next level. But obviously, like I love Italy, being Italian and speaking Italian. But Germany, Berlin was just like chef's kiss. Yeah, chef's ten kiss. out of ten. I love it. Loved it. That's really cool. <laughs> and what would you say has been your overall career highlight? I think for me, it's probably the story I published rather recently, actually. Um, It had a few typos, which was annoying. But it was about Suzuki's departure from MotoGP. And I got a lot of clap back for it. But also I got a lot of praise for it because I was able to take some genuine research and put it into words and make sense of what was happening when no one else could. So that was... I think that was really prevalent to me and that people noticed it and a lot of people hated it. A lot of people loved it, but I think that was a really cool piece of work that I did. So I'm quite proud of that. Yeah, that's awesome. And do you have a favorite track? Oh, Red Bull, Red Bull ring in Austria for sure. It's the best. It's just not everybody loves it because some people find it really dull, whatever. I think it's fantastic up the hill, down the hill. You can't sit anywhere without a great view. Um, it's beautiful. It is a beautiful track. 
and obviously you being a motorbike chick, me personally, I'm a car chick, but you're a motorbike chick. Have you ever gotten on a bike yourself or do you want to? Yeah, I um, used to ride a Ducati Monster um, back in the day before I had my accident or whatever else. And I used to run a motorcycle accessory store as well. So I'm always quite quite affiliated with motorsport or motorbikes. Um, and yeah, I was thinking about it. I've got to get my license in the UK. So it's come up in conversation, but I don't know what bike I get on if I was going to get on another one. I don't know. So I put some thought into that. There you go. That's good. So getting down to the nitty gritty now, this is Girls on the Grid. We've talked about it. We know the sport is very male dominant and whatnot. Have you ever felt like an outsider in the sport within your role because of this? No, I don't think I feel like an outsider. I think I have worked incredibly hard to be taken seriously in the matter that I am. And I still think there are a lot of people that don't take me seriously and that's okay too um, because that's their business. I think what's been really hard about coming into this is shaking an old image more than anything. I think people still think of me as a 19, 20-year-old when in actual fact I'm much closer to 30. I have I've studied and I've worked and I've lived in other places in the world and I've done other things outside of motorsport. Um, so I think it's that's the hard one for me is to shake an ancient persona or image that people have of me, which predates who I am now. Um, but that aside, I've never felt like an outsider and I shouldn't have to. It's, you know, there's no place for that. Awesome. And final question, what is your advice for someone wanting to get into motorsport? Don't be scared. Don't, don't, don't be shy and don't be scared. Ask, meet everyone. Ask all the questions. Ask for the introductions and make use of LinkedIn. Make your LinkedIn look impeccable because I see this on a regular basis. I will walk through the paddock. Someone will come up to me and go, are you Maddie Scottier? And I go, yeah. And they go, we connected on LinkedIn about five years ago. I'm Valeria, blah, 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 from blah, blah, blah. That's cool. We should have a coffee. So have the, the same attention that you pay to how your Instagram looks and the images you post pay to the things you say on LinkedIn because it is a professional reflection of who you want to be. Um, it's all about branding, isn't it? So if it is, it's, you know, I have a really unique and ident identifiable brand now. And I think if you want to meet people, don't be scared to add them on LinkedIn. You know, getting into the paddock is hard. It's, it is hard. It's a very exclusive club. So Add the right people on LinkedIn, ask the right messages, ask the people from, you know, different news outlets if they can view your work and what they think of it and what they do to improve. Get, get all the advice and be okay with the fact that not everyone's going to like you. You cannot impress everyone. Don't try to. It's not worth it. Stay true to who you are. They don't have to like it. That's their business. Well, Maddie, it's been a great chat. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm loving watching your journey and everything you're doing. And yeah, really good to see your passion for the sport and some of the challenges that you've overcome. So keep doing what you're doing and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening to today's pod. I really hope you enjoyed my chat with Maddie. I definitely did. She is super inspiring and in what she's had to overcome and she's just 
so good at what she does and so passionate. So thank you again, Maddie. It was such a pleasure to have you on. So as always for you guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I myself have a pretty big week coming up. Uh, We've got the Ben Supercars this weekend. So quite keen to get out and make some content. And we'll hopefully run into Tanea at some stage and actually have a catch up because I feel like it's been a while. Um, But yeah, in the meantime, hope you all have a great week and we'll see you next Monday. You've just listened to another Network R production. 